my name is Allison and I'm here with Charles and this is the second episode of the Faith Misunderstood podcast brought to you by the River Church in New York City. If you're here listening live, welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us today. Uh, We'd love to hear from you in the chat. uh, So please just comment and let us know where you're listening from. Um, So every week we're going to tackle impossible questions about one faith topic. Today's topic is the Bible. So if you'd like to ask a question about the Bible, this is your chance. Send us your Bible questions uh, by commenting in the chat and we'll do our best to answer them. All right, so let's dive right in. So the first question, many Christians believe that the Bible is inerrant. What does that mean? And how should we think about biblical inerrancy? Okay, that's a great question. Inerrancy has been a a major topic for uh, quite a a while. Uh, It means without error, inerrant, no errors, like it's perfect. Like every word, every letter, it's perfect, without error, as if it was dropped straight from heaven, that it reflects God's will perfectly for all time, for everyone, because it is uh, perfection itself from God's mouth, uh, straight to the pages of the Bible on earth. And some religions and their holy texts uh, do have that conception of the Bible or their holy text. <laughs> like Quran is dictation from an angel of heaven, uh, dictated uh, word for word to Prophet Muhammad. So it is perfection itself, it's straight from heaven. And so you can't even translate it and call it Quran because it is perfect in its original form. But the Bible, that's not how it's been traditionally viewed. The uh, Bible has traditionally, by theologians, have been viewed as sort of a, a work of God and man, just as Jesus is God and man. That Bible is uh, God-inspired, but that human beings had their role in writing the Bible. For example, the Gospel of Luke in the Bible one of the four major Gospels in the New Testament. It begins by author of the book, Luke, Dr. Luke, physician, describing how he decided to investigate all these stories and interviewed all these eyewitnesses of Jesus, uh, the contemporaries, like apostles and disciples of Jesus, and had them tell him what they saw and what they heard. And he wrote it down faithfully. That's how he describes the book of Luke at the beginning of the book. So obviously, he is not portraying it as a dictation from heaven. He went around finding people who saw Jesus and heard Jesus and experienced Jesus and wrote down what they said and tried to do his best and faithfully writing down what uh, it represents. And so if you look at it that way, if it's not dictation from heaven, then it is hard to imagine how it can be perfection itself. Uh, Because human beings are just witnessing things. If you, uh, this is well known, if somebody witnesses a crime 
if you ask 10 different witnesses, they will have slightly different accounts, depending on what they saw, because it's limited and colored and impacted by who you are and your culture and your language and how you see things. And so there is a little personality or, or color that gets put into what people see. And so there's going to be slight discrepancies, and that is what we see in the Bible too. Like there's slight discrepancies, and and there are commands and things in the Bible that is hard to believe that it is for all people at every time. Perfection itself, for example, uh, commands like slaves must obey their masters. Um, that's hard to see how that can apply for all people at all times. Uh, that it is straightforward God's will, word for word. Uh, there is a requirement of some interpretation that needs to happen, some context that needs to be given to understand that it is a work of, uh, inspired by God, but the human beings living in that culture, uh, writing down uh, what they thought for God's words and actions and doing their best. Uh, but yet there are human elements as well as uh, divinely inspired elements. So uh, our view is that the Bible is not inerrant because it is, as with all things of earth, something to do with human beings as well as God. And, you know, us human beings, nothing of human beings is perfect for all time. Mm -hmm. So a follow-up question to that. If it's not perfect, if it's not inerrant, why should we take it seriously? Why should it be an authoritative guide uh, for Christians? So another wonderful question. So if it is not perfection itself, straight from heaven, why should Christians consider it an authoritative text and look at it like a moral guide for all times? Uh, again, we believe it is man and God. And so there is divine elements in the Bible, divine uh, inspired uh, texts and statements that can serve as a moral guide because we as human beings, we have our blind spots. We live in a culture and we make assumptions. And so everything that we see as even good or moral 2,000 years from now, that may be seen as not so good. <laughs> we are constrained. We are products of our time. And so it is very helpful to have something that is inspired, prophetic, outside of ourselves, that can be the North Star, uh, saying this is the way to go, that can break us out of the light by which we see. Uh, because it is beyond us. And there are elements in the Bible that are clearly divinely inspired, that are way beyond uh, the products or the products of that time. Uh, for example, statements like, there is no man or woman, uh, Jew or Gentile, meaning believer, non-believer, or race, or uh, free or slave, rich or poor, in Christ, uh, this is like 2,000 years ahead of its time. Nobody back then thought like that. When you look at uh, important texts from that time, uh, from east to west, it, it, nobody thought like this. This is an incredible statement because, uh, I mean, just to show what an inspired statement that is, 
the people of God, the people of the church at the time, men, they had a daily thanksgiving prayer. Like we say grace before eating meals every time, they had a daily prayer like Lord's Prayer, and it went like this, thank you God for making me a man and not a woman. Thank you God for making me a believer, a Jew, not an infidel, or a Gentile. Thank you God for making me free, not a slave. That was the daily Thanksgiving prayer. So when everyone is thinking that way, and everyone is thinking there are these categories, and there are better and worse, and it's better to be man than woman, better to be uh, Jew than Gentile, uh, free and, than slave, and, and making all these uh, categorical statements, for someone professing to be a religious leader in the church to come up and go up against everything that everyone says every day as a Thanksgiving prayer, that's hard to see. <laughs> you cannot expect to gather any followers. I mean, you'll be seen as a crazy person. It's 2,000 years ahead of its time. It's like finding some kind of advanced physics 2,000 years ago. It's clearly advanced and inspired ahead of its time. So statements like that can serve to break us out of the culture, the rut that we get into, and move out. And over the last 2,000 years, I do think Spirit of God has been moving us towards this sort of reality where the, the difference and the barrier and the wall between man and women, free and slave, Jew and Gentile, that these things have been getting weaker and weaker and weaker. It's taken 2,000 years, and we still have some ways to go. But the Spirit of God is moving us that direction. And so to have an inspired text like the Bible, can get us out of our conventional thinking. And it's all over the Bible, like Genesis 3, to call knowledge of good and evil the root of all evil and sin. That's inspired. That is not something that I can think of any human being concocting some religion from their own culture and their thinking to come up with. It's so strange. <laughs> it's so weird and unexpected, but when you dig into it, there's just unbelievable wisdom behind these statements that can move us forward into the kind of world that God wants for us, so we can serve as a moral guide uh, that takes us out of ourselves into somewhere better than we can get uh, from ourselves by ourselves. So that's why it's worth uh, studying the Bible and looking at the Bible and looking at you know, what are the elements here that looks divinely inspired that's calling us to better natures of the world and ourselves? Yeah, so just building on that, if the Bible is both God and man, how do we sift through what parts are God, what parts are man, what parts are divinely inspired? Is, what parts are that not? is such a good question. Which parts are divinely inspired and which parts look like it belongs to the man part and product of the culture? So one way to tell is, well, is it expected of someone from that time and culture to be talking like that? That's definitely, you know, a product of their time. Like, for example, I think I talked about this last week, that the Bible talks a lot about not eating meat with blood in it. 
That, that's an abomination before God. It's not just in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. The very first church council made a huge deal about stuff like that. And things like that, you can look at that and say, that feels like more like a man part, that the product of their culture and their time, that it had its own meaning back then. Uh, but hard to see how it applies for all time that takes us out of the product of the culture. It's something you'd expect to see in a text like that because people back then thought like that. Uh, slaves should obey their master. Well, that's a, uh, it's in three different places in the New Testament. Um, it's something that people back then thought, you know, there was a consensus that that's what should be happening. It doesn't take you out of that time. It's not advanced. It's not something you wouldn't expect to see uh, people of that time writing. So if you want to say, if you want to see if something is divine, something is inspired, then you're looking for something that is surprising, unexpected, you know, ahead of its time. Um, and there's a lot in the Bible that's like that. Jesus' teachings are just full of unexpected surprises, you know, one after another. So you don't have to look very far, parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the good Samaritan. These are very unexpected teachings, you know, uh, or statements like God is not served by human hands. Instead, God gives you stuff. God serves you. Now, that's kind of hard to see in a culture where everyone is used to like, okay, we bring God sacrifices, we do these things for God, and then if we do enough of that, God will maybe protect us. You know, if that's that's expected kind of mentality. So to see statements where that goes completely against stuff like that, where everybody's thinking one way, and then you see a statement that goes another way, but seems to contain tremendous truth. Then you can start to say, this is more than man. This is very strange. This is ahead of your time. And there's something here that's speaking to me that can take me out of my culture, my time, to a better way of life. Our next question comes from Larissa. So Larissa wants to know, well, why would God allow passages that go against agape, a concept we talked about a lot in the last podcast episode, um, to be in the Bible in the first place? Why would God allow these parts of the Bible to be included at all? Right. So the Bible does have statements like slaves should obey their masters or women should not lead. They must submit. They shouldn't even speak in public, <laughs> you know, or uh, uh, passages about LGBTQ lifestyle. Now, all these statements that, you know, it's not all over the Bible. It's maybe five, six times. Uh, Bible is a very big book, so five, six times is not that many. Uh, but you do see these statements, and it does seem to go against the principle of agape. Agape, I talked about last week, and we talk about a lot here in this church. Agape is unconditional love, 
And agape is all over the Bible, not just five, six times. It is the central theme of the New Testament, for example. Uh, the Bible says the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through agape. Oh, agape fulfills every command in the Bible. All the commands in the Bible is summed up in one principle, agape. Because agape does no harm. Uh, agape is the fulfillment. Uh, Jesus talked about how everything in the Bible hangs on the principle of agape. Uh, it's the greatest commandment. Or God is agape. I don't know any other statement in the Bible that says God is God loves justice, God does this, but agape seems to be the definition of God. So if God is agape, why would God allow statements in the Bible that seem to go against agape? Uh, and we do see certain statements uh, that seems to be in that direction. That's a powerful and wonderful question. And it's actually an even bigger question than just about the Bible, because it's another topic coming up in the podcast. But the question can be extended to, if God is agape, why does God allow anything in the world, in the creation, to go against agape? Why does a good God allow evil and suffering in this world? If God controls, like if our assumption is God controls what's in the Bible, but if we think that way, why don't God control what's in the creation? Yeah. God is supposed to be in control of everything. And so, not just the Bible, but why does God allow evil and suffering and conditional mindset that causes all kinds of bad things to happen to good people in the world? That's a very good question. And we're going to delve into that, I think, next, next week. week. Yeah. So we'll have a lot more time to even go into that. But here in this little bit more focused uh, uh, subject, uh, why does the Bible, uh, why does God allow the Bible to have non-agape or anti-agape statements? Again, I think, and, and, and this will go to next week too, that God is into collaborating with uh, creation, uh, the creation account of the Bible. It's not God directly does everything. It says God said, let the earth produce fruit. God doesn't produce fruit directly. God says earth, God invites the earth to go and produce, come earth, Let's you produce fruit. And so then the earth becomes a partner with God in an ongoing act of creation and how this creation happens. And so we'll talk more about that next week. But the Bible too, if we think of it as a product of God and man, then man has a lot of power in how it's shaped and what happens in it. God inspires the human beings, but human beings are human beings. It's not like God takes over a particular human being like a puppet, you know, just like God has taken over and now I will write what God has said. That is not our view of the Bible. It's like Luke going around and saying, what did you see? And they tell him what they saw. What did you hear? And they tell him what they heard. And he writes it down. 
Well, don't you think that as human beings, there might have been, their perspective may have been colored by their culture and their knowledge and their language even? Now, heavenly things are now like being captured in the bottle or the vessel of human beings. And so that it's not the fault of the heavenly thing. It's like trying to fit uh, something perfect and infinite into a little bottle. There's going to be some problems in the translation. And so we can see some problems uh, in translation of that. Now, why does God allow that possibility of mistakes or misunderstanding to arise? Well, I believe that's because God has given choice to all creation. Uh, for God to be agape and love, you have to have choice. If God were to take over people like some kind of puppet and just like make them do things or write things, that's forced. That's antithetical to love. Love has to be freely given. It's no longer love. It's just obedience. Why have creation? I mean, why not just have a robotic, you know, Stepford Wives kind of world where everyone and everything just does whatever? I, I mean, why even bother? Yeah. Right? So if God, if the first principle is that God is love, then God has to allow evil choice. There was tree of knowledge of good and evil and tree of life. And right there, I think, is the first principle of creation, is that God lets creation do what it wants to do. And if there is some error and mistakes there, if they go against God, like we see in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they no longer have a God thing. They have very conditional mindset when they start like, covering up and blaming each other and judging. God lets it happen. Yeah. God lets the prodigal son go instead of making the son stay. And right there is the answer. And so now we have to like see and exercise some judgment about who God is and what God wants, uh, even in our understanding of what the Bible is saying. For example, slaves obey their master. For 1,800 years, church supported slavery. St. Patrick was put to inquisition for speaking out against slavery here and there. We cannot whitewash that history. Why did we do that? Because we saw the Bible as just perfect in every way, and every word should be followed. We need to use the principle of agape in understanding every word in the Bible. We would never have gone wrong. Every issue in history would have been on the right side of history if we used the lens of agape to interpret everything. And that's what Jesus told us to do in the Bible. So why not just obey that and go with it? Um, so you hinted at this a little bit about kind of how do we understand who God is, and that ties into a question from Josh. So Josh wants to know, how do you reconcile the different portrayals of God in the Old and New Testaments? Yes, that's another great question that people have struggled with for ages. Uh, and there is a different portrayal. <laughs> we can't whitewash that either. But again, if you look at it from the perspective of God is a product of God and men, and men are products of the culture and the, their times, 
Then in the Old Testament, their culture and their times incline people to view events and reality from a certain perspective. And that shows in the writing that they are trying to be very faithful to what they are seeing or understanding God to be doing, but it's, it's who they are. It's what they breathe. It's the light by which they see. So it is hard to get away from some of that in there. Uh, and that's why Jesus, when Jesus came, he said, look at everything uh, from my teachings and from me. Jesus said, when you look at me, you see God clearly. And so what he's meaning by that is that everything you see in the Old Testament, everything that you think God is doing or saying, look at it from, you know, that famous saying, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? What would Jesus think? So Jesus is perfect representation of God on earth is what we Christians believe. That Jesus was God in the flesh that if we want to understand anything of God, we need to look at everything from the lens of Jesus and Jesus' teachings. And Jesus was agape in every way. And he taught agape. And he told people to look at things from agape perspective. And so that's where I think we can say, yes, the New Testament God looks different from Old Testament God and my personal belief is that New Testament God is what I have staked my flag on. Because I'm a Christian. I'm not a Biblian. <laughs> I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. Right? The Bible is not what we follow as a Christian. As a Christian, we follow Jesus. And so if there's any... And, and, and mostly there is uniform continuity between old and new. There are some differences. It's not the, we don't want to like highlight, like it's completely different. There is a lot of continuity and there is some discontinuity. And when we see those discontinuities, just go with Jesus. Go with how the New Testament or what Jesus taught as this is who God is and this is what God is like. That is the a lot better understanding more perfect understanding of who God is because Jesus transcended the time his teachings were unbelievably good and advanced and he claimed to represent God perfectly and so when we say we are Christian we are saying okay we're believing that we're going to go with that we're going to say we're going to go with Jesus's understanding and portrayal and how Jesus portrayed God that is the perfect understanding of God and those differences that we see in the Old Testament, we can attribute that to the vessel, the man, the human part, that, that even the writers of the Bible could have been affected by their culture and may not have perfectly understood what was happening as they were writing these down. And wherever there is a disagreement, we're going with Jesus. And that's what makes us Christian. So if you have any questions that you want to submit that we haven't talked about already, this is your chance. Put them in the chat um, while we move on to our next question. 
Um, so many Christian denominations believe in the theological doctrine sola scriptura. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that is and whether it's a helpful principle for us today. You know, I, I do think Sola Scriptura was pretty helpful at the time. Sola Scriptura is Latin, it just means only the Bible. And it uh, was the rallying cry of the Reformation, of the uh, Protestant revolt against the dominant Catholic Church at the time, um, 1500s. Uh, Martin Luther, 15th century Martin Luther came up with that and it became a rallying cry for Protestants and we are Protestants <laughs> ourselves. Uh, and the reason why that happened is because the church was at the time very corrupt. The popes were having multiple mistresses and they were engaged in wars and assassinations and priests and monks were only caring about most of them at least, many of them at least, were caring about money and all kinds of bad stuff was happening in the church and that led to Protestant, Protestant Reformation. And so the scripture became the rallying cry because the church claimed authority over all matters spiritual. The church held the key to salvation. Um, the church viewed itself as God's representative on earth, that if we were to try to understand God's will, try to understand anything, that it was supposed to be Bible and tradition and church. It was a three-legged thing to, to try to understand uh, what God was trying to do and say. Uh, a Bible before this time was not the sole inerrant authority. It was never viewed that way for the first 1500 years. The church would not allow Bible to be translated even because church was afraid that people would misunderstand the Bible or misinterpret. Uh, and the church held the right to interpret the Bible and, along with the tradition and its consultative body. And so the Protestant Reformation needed an alternative authoritative source uh, in order to rebel against the church's claim to monopoly or exclusive right to interpret God's will on earth. And so Protestants uh, rebel by saying, church, you know, you guys, you preach the Pope, you guys are so corrupt, we cannot buy into the fact that you are God's representative on earth. Instead, we're going to lift up the Bible and say God and God's will can only be seen through the Bible. We're not going to listen to any human being like the church. And that's not the authoritative source. The Bible and only the Bible is the authoritative source. And over time, there became inerrancy of the Bible because when you want to try to claim that it is the perfect representation of God, then it becomes, you know. So the Catholic Church in response kind of developed this doctrine of infallibility. You might have heard infallible, infallibility of Pope when the Pope speaks for the Church. The Church is infallible. It's perfect. The Church can interpret God's will perfectly. We see perfect. You cannot, you know, we are, listen to us. Don't leave, you know, 
be part of our clan and give money to us <laughs> because we are the perfectionists. Uh, we represent God. We are infallible. And then the Protestants, you know, yelling back. No, the Bible is the perfection. Bible is in error. And it's just like, you know, it's almost like children's fast, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you are. No, I am. <laughs> it's almost like that, right? Because, I mean, how can anything of earth be like perfect, like inerrant and infallible? This is idolatry. To turn something tangible of earth like church or the Bible into God, into like perfection itself. You know, human beings have always been drawn to this because we get insecure. We want to have something tangible right in front of us. And we look, and one day it's golden calf, another day it's the church, another day it's the Bible. And we like ascribe God-like attributes to these tangible things of earth, of us, of human beings, and say, here, O people of God, here is your God. You know? And that always leads to bad things. <laughs> that does not lead to good things. There's a reason why God was very against idolatry. It's, it's of the knowledge of good and evil. It's uh, a fig leaf. And so it's not very good. And so, at the time, when Sola Scriptura came up, it, in, as a, a, an antidote to the tyranny of the church, saying that church can sell tickets to heaven, because we represent God, you know, like mm-hmm. indulgences, right? Yeah. You remember this? that church said we are like God-like, and so we can actually, actually, if you give us money, we can give you a ticket to heaven. Like, such horrible practices had to go down, and so this idea that, so we are gonna follow only the Bible, not you abusive people. (laughs) I think it had its usefulness at the time, but over time it became its own tyranny, and became its own golden calf, and then it becomes irrational, and it becomes an idolatry that leads to all kinds of harm. Um, we have to sit back and say, no, only God is God. Mm-hmm. And we have access to God through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus and Agape. And so we don't have to have these false idols, false comfort, just to have the illusion of something tangible that anchors your life. So our final question for today is, how much emphasis should Christians place on obtaining Bible knowledge? Yeah, so how much time should we spend on the Bible? And and a lot of churches, especially Protestant or Evangelicals, like myself, we we, uh, place so much importance in learning and understanding and memorizing the Bible. I I uh, I used to belong to InnoVarsity Christian Fellowship and loved it. Uh, they used to say in a varsity believes in Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. <laughs> and so we are very much into the Bible, and I really love the Bible, and it's a wonderful thing. But I have to say, we are Christians, not Biblians. And there's a reason for that. Um, people who love the Bible 
can actually go off the rails. Like the Pharisees, they love the Bible. They study the Bible a lot more than most contemporary Christians do. And when God appeared to them in the form of Jesus, they killed them. And so, you know, it's not a guarantee of anything to know the Bible inside out. You can use the Bible as a weapon. You can use the Bible as a fig leaf. Uh, it goes with the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, so, I love the Bible, but really, there is what we need to really put our effort on is agape. How can we grow in unconditional love? As opposed to, I mean, there are four words in Greek for love, eros, and philia, and storge, and agape. And eros is romantic love, and storge is like love that you have for like family, you know, it's like deep attachment that philia is things you like, you know, you love jazz or you love Yankees. Some people will like give their life to stuff like that, so this is not to be taken lightly. But it's only agape that the Bible says God is agape. God is not any kind of love, you know. Most translations just translate God is love, but it loses its punch because you know, what about mother's love for their children? They do incredible sacrificial things for their children. But the Bible is not saying mother's love as sacrificial and as uh, other-centered and you know, unselfish as, a, as it is. The Bible doesn't say that that's what saves you and that's what uh, the, the guiding light in faith. It's not Eros, it's not romantic love, it's not Juliet and, you know, Romeo and Juliet that is the center of Christian faith. Agape is the center of Christian faith, and what distinguishes Agape from all these kinds of other love is that it's unconditional. It's like parable of the prodigal son, or parable of the good Samaritan. It doesn't put any condition. It is the essence of the message of the cross that it doesn't have conditions. You know, it's unconditional mindset and that's very hard to do and I wish more Christians would put more effort into growing in that uh, agape as opposed to any other value the Bible itself tells us we could move mountains have such such great faith that we can like have miracle powers like move mountains or heal people or prophesy or speak the uh, language of angels and I imagine like knowing Bible inside out would be included in that but first Corinthians 13 says none of that amounts to anything it's nothing compared to agape or growing in agape that that our services that our knowledge of God or nothing like that is worth anything compared to even a little bit of effort put into growing in agape. So why don't we listen to that? If the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love, the Bible itself is telling us that learning and studying the Bible is not the central thing in faith, is it? I mean, there are passages where he says, like, Bible is, is, is beneficial, it's instructive, you know, First Timothy, and, and, and there are 
a few passages, not that many, <laughs> that talks about how it's good for you to study the Bible, but nothing like the emphasis the Bible itself places on agape. How it's everything, how it's the only thing that matters. God is agape. Uh, everywhere. So why don't we put more effort into that? Why don't we listen to the Bible? Uh, and say, hey, this is what we need to do. Let's grow in being unconditional in ourselves, but also out there in the world. What can I do as someone with a mission and a purpose, as someone sent into, into the world as salt and light? Uh, why don't we try to bring the world more towards agape? That that's our mission, that's evangelism, that's our purpose as Christians to go and wherever we see uh, conditional injustice. Like slavery, that was a definition of conditional injustice. If someone's skin was dark, then they could be treated like animals. That's conditional treatment of human beings. That's not conditional love. Fight it. And we'll do everything we can to go around and try to change people's subconscious mind as well. That's conversion towards agape, unconditionally treating people, going away from caste mindset. That takes a lot of work. And so I wish more of us would um, spend more time doing that. And I think that's what the Bible itself is telling us to do. Thank you so much, Charles. I don't know about you listening, but I feel pretty inspired. Um, so I hope you all enjoyed that discussion. Uh, and we'd love for you to join us again next week at the same time, two o'clock Eastern time. Uh, next week, we'll be tackling impossible questions about suffering. So if you have any questions about that topic, please feel free to submit them to us uh, so we can uh, discuss them next week. Uh, feel free to email them to podcast at rivernyc.org. And we would love it if you would like, comment, and subscribe uh, to our channel. Uh, that way you can turn on the notification button so that you can always be notified when we post new videos. Uh, so thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye.